Good morning. I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians 16 and pull out your outline. We encourage note-taking around here. We think that's very helpful for you to, to interact with what you're hearing um, very actively. So, uh, yeah, we encourage you to take notes. Um, you can do that on your phone, too, so just whatever you need to do. Um, that song that we just sang, I, I always love it because we, we obviously plan what we're kind of doing week in and week out and try to prepare, but Jeff and I don't tell Kevin, hey, here's the songs we want you to do and the order we want you to do them in, and that does happen out there in churches, <laughs> but we, we just really trust the Lord to orchestrate this time of worship and uh, literally week after week after week, we see God um, orchestrating a really a transformational kind of experience like what, what we just sang and heard. And that song, Good, Good Father, is going to help all of us get into the text we're gonna get into today. Like our belief in that, our assurance of that really helps us I think, receive uh, these words in 1 Corinthians that we're about to study. So we're on the home stretch. We are at the end of this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. It's chapter 16. We did kind of change things up a little bit, if you remember. We did chapter 15, which is focused on resurrection right after Easter. And then we went backward and talked a little bit about gifting and body life and how we kind of work together to build up the church in chapters 11 through 14. And now we're going to jump back forward again to uh, this last chapter in the book. We're calling this uh, little mini-series Coda, which uh, I hope this is right. I, I think that the Italian uh, meaning for that is tail. So we're at the tail end of this book. And uh, we're, we're building on the musical theme that we had in 11 through 14. And uh, a coda is kind of the, it's the conclusion. It draws a beautiful piece of music or even a great piece of literature to its, to its ending and uh, helps us pull everything together. Now, if you're reading along and you read chapter 15 and into 16, it might seem a little bit abrupt, like we were on this mountaintop in 15 talking about the resurrection of Christ. We call that the linchpin of our faith, right? So we're on this unbelievable mountaintop and then we get to 16 and I want to read the end of 15 and the beginning of 16 and see if you can feel that a little bit. He ends in 1558 with, therefore my beloved brothers, in light of this truth of the resurrection, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And I kind of get this feeling like the church stands to their feet and they're like, okay, Paul, I'm ready. Tell me what to do. Verse 16, one. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. <laughs> it feels a little bit like, what? 
If you haven't been in church much, if you're new to church, or maybe you've been in church a long time and you have some feelings about this, honestly, it feels a little bit like, oh, okay, we got all fired up about the resurrection and now you're going to ask for an offering. You ever experienced that before? Yeah, he's talking about the collection, giving, money. And we separate that, don't we? We separate our material possessions and all of those things from the glory of the resurrection. Well, why do we do that? Because God most certainly doesn't. It's interesting, if you get into the scriptures cover to cover, you find that the Bible has a lot to say about money and possessions. Uh, Jesus told somewhere close to 40 parables and almost half of them in some, some way reference what we have and uh, our money. Now, why is that? I think it's because what's at stake with our stuff. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19 through 21. This is what's at stake. Don't lay up treasures for yourselves on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Here it is. For where your treasure is, your stuff, your possessions, your cash, your investments, your 401k, where all that stuff, where that is, your heart will be also. Now, it's not that we shouldn't have stuff. It's not that God hasn't entrusted Maybe a whole lot of stuff, really nice stuff to us, but there's something about where it is in here that really matters. So we're going to think for a few minutes this morning about where our treasure is because our hearts are at stake. And that seems to matter a lot to Paul. Now, it's always helpful for me to remember what's true about Paul. Like, what does he know that's going around in his heart and head as he writes these four verses that we're going to look at this morning? Because sometimes we can forget. We can think that he just kind of woke up in the morning one day and said, I think I'm going to pen a letter to 1 Corinthians, or not 1 Corinthians, to the church in Corinth. <laughs> we'll call it 1 Corinthians. And then he just starts writing. And it's just sort of downloading from heaven. Here are things that I absolutely know Paul knew as he was writing this letter. Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and all those who dwell therein. He knew that God owns it all when he was writing that letter. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus said that. What or how much I possess will never bring me life. Paul knew that. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, we studied this a while back. You 
are not your own. You've been bought with a price. So you and I answer to one greater than ourselves. This life isn't about just pleasing us, is it? Paul knew that. Paul quotes Jesus in Acts 20. It is more blessed to give than to receive. So see, see what I'm saying here? We can't forget these things that Paul knew when he starts taking up a collection with a church in Corinth. Because those two go together. He doesn't make any separation there. He's asking what he is of them in light of what he knows about them and about their good, good father. Romans 14, 12. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. So what we do with what we have really matters. Now we haven't even gotten into the text yet, but we gotta have all that in mind as we go here or we're gonna go in some bad directions to some bad places. It's just human nature. Here's Paul's heart in this statement. Concerning the collection for the saints as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. So here's Paul's heart. First of all, he has a heart for the saints in Jerusalem. That's who he's referring to here. And they are impoverished, they are persecuted, they are struggling. And it is so desperate there that Paul is literally visiting all of the churches that he planted around that entire region pleading with them to come alongside their brothers and their sisters in Jerusalem, who, by the way, were responsible for bringing the gospel to them to begin with. So he has no reservations at all about saying, listen, you got the gospel from them and they need you to come alongside them in a very material way to help them in this very difficult time. So he has a heart for the saints in Jerusalem. He also has a heart for the believers in Corinth. I hope I just demonstrated that from what we know from the scriptures is true about all of us. And he knows that if the, the believers in Corinth have this separation between what they have and what they believe, it's gonna harm them in their own hearts. They're gonna lack some things that God really wants to do in them and through them if they don't address this potential separation. So he has a heart of renewal for the believers in Corinth. He has a heart for unity among Jew and Gentile Christians. You see, the church began with Jews. They were Jewish believers, but that's, that's who's in Jerusalem. The folks in Corinth are primarily Gentiles. And we know from the book of Galatians, there was a lot of hostility between those two cultures. But what if, what if these Gentiles, out of a love for their God and appreciation for his grace toward him and, and a genuine love for their brothers and sisters in Christ, give to help their Jewish brothers and sisters out? It's probably gonna be good for the big C church, isn't it? which doesn't have ethnicity attached to it. Paul's about unity in the church. And then lastly, Paul is about advancement of the gospel. 
He knows that if there is any reservation within the body of Christ from that building up idea, that it will inevitably affect the, the progress of the gospel by the, you know, as the world's looking, they're looking at a church that says they believe the gospel, but they see them letting one another struggle and die. <laughs> that has an effect on the message, doesn't it? Gordon Fee says this about Paul's heart. The collection was not some mere matter of money, but was for Paul an active response to the grace of God that not only ministered to the needs of God's people, but also became a kind of ministry to God himself, which resulted in thanksgiving toward God and in a bond of fellowship between God's people across the empire. See, it's way, way bigger than just paying some bills for some fellow believers who are having a rough day. Here's a statement I, I hope you'll write down and think about. Our giving is evidence of God's gracious activity in us and a fulfillment of God's gracious activity through us. It's both. Now, there's a great illustration of this in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, particularly chapter 8. I want to read this to you. Um, unfortunately, the Corinthians didn't respond very well to letter number one, so he had to write letter number two. You know, I can relate. You can be a slow learner. It's okay. So, uh, so Paul writes this second letter, and he comes back to the collection, which apparently they weren't really responding to. So he points out this beautiful illustration of people who are giving in the way that he thought the Corinthians would, certainly the way he urged them to. Listen to this. We want you to know, Corinthians, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, meaning they, weren't, they didn't have their arms twisted. In fact, they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus, he was very connected with the Corinthians, that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. You could say this same act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, as you excel in all of those things, see to it that you excel in this act of grace also. That would have been pretty sobering for the Corinthians. To hear of this so here, let's just, because we, we've been talking about it recently. This would be like Paul writing Fellowship Bible Church a letter 
telling us about a need somewhere in the world and telling us about the generosity of the Haitians that we just visited on a missionary visit to help. And he said, listen, if you guys want to know how to give, if you want to get that, let me tell you about the Haitians. Because they really don't have anything to give, but they find it. Some way, somehow, they figure it out. I just, I keep getting this stuff from the Haitians. And they keep saying over and over again, God is good all the time. That's the Macedonians. A severe test of affliction, extreme poverty, and that generates generosity. It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense mathematically, but it makes all the sense in the world when you understand the reality of what Paul highlights here, and that is grace. See, grace has a value attached to it that no money or possessions could ever even begin to approach. Out of an abundance of joy beyond their means, they begged earnestly to get to play. I love that. We're getting down to the real reality of life, just like this isn't theoretical. These aren't just kind intentions. This is the real deal. This is how you and I live every single day with our stuff. And I'll just say this before I get into these principles. Um, I hope, I truly hope that you know, if you're feeling guilty, it's not coming from up here, okay? I, you gotta know, I get it. I am with you. I might as well be sitting out there receiving this message, this call to let the grace of God inform my understanding of what I do with my stuff. That's what we're doing here this morning. That's what God is inviting us to do, is to come to him and say, okay, Lord, I'm gonna just put it out there and let you decide. I don't wanna control this stuff. I don't wanna cling to this stuff. I just wanna hold it with open hands and let you direct me. Because I know there is life found in that that all the stuff in the world could never, ever give me. Verse 2. <laughs> On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up that he, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. I just thought as I read this, let's just go through this because there's some great principles here that really do help us. If, if the heart is right, these are great tracks to run on if you wanna give this way. So on the first day, that's speaking of the priority of giving. You've heard us talk numerous times about first fruits. That's an Old Testament pattern that was given to Israel. 
we've talked often about Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So the idea, the pattern that God gave his people was because you trust me, See, that's the deal. It's, that's the bottom line. Remember, he's a good, good father. So because you trust me, whenever you get what you get, the first thing that you do is you take a part of that and you invest it directly into the mission. You never see it. It never touches your hands. It just goes right through, straight to what God is doing. And then whatever is left, that's what you live on. That's what you do every bit of life with. But you do the giving first. It's not a leftover. It's not from your uh, net. It's from gross. And it's all out of faith. Saying, Lord, I'm going to trust you that you will give me what I need. So there's a priority. And then he says of every week, so it seems that there's a factor of consistency. There's a a pattern, a habit, a a rhythm that we get into. And, and, And really, don't we know that? Don't we understand that when we look at the rest of life? Like, do you eat pretty regularly? Do you sleep pretty regularly? Do you breathe pretty regularly? Right, like life is a rhythm. And when it's not in rhythm, it's usually not very healthy. And so he's just saying, just do that with your giving. It's not reactive, it's not episodic, it's not an afterthought, it's very intentional. And you build in this structure that you just kind of walk in. And I tell you, the longer you walk in that rhythm, the more it just feels like, oh, this is how you live life. It may take you a little bit to get there, but you can apply this spiritually. Bible intake, prayer. Like, would we ever say, you know, just kind of read your Bible when you feel like it. (laughs) Just pray, you know, occasionally. The Bible doesn't say that. It says pray without what? Ceasing, (laughs) yeah, yeah. So we bring that same kind of pattern to our giving. On the first day of every week, each of you, okay, now Paul's going to step on some toes. No exceptions. Do you remember the story that Jesus tells or we hear it in the Gospels about he's got all his disciples around and they're sitting near the temple And this senior adult woman walks toward the giving box and drops two little pennies in. You remember what he said about her? First of all, he says that she gave all that she had. Somehow she found it. And then he says she gave more than everybody else. And I'm sure the disciples were like... Jesus, like, did she slip something in like before we were looking or something? Because all I saw was two little pennies go in. He said, no, because she gave out of her lack, not out of her surplus. 
There's a heart thing there. See, the, uh, the amount isn't really the issue, is it? I'm getting ahead of myself. Each of you, from the widow to the gazillionaire, everyone is called to play a part. No exceptions. It's all inclusive. There's no distinction between clergy and non-clergy, right? Staff, elders, laymen, all those categories that we have, they don't apply here. It's everybody. We're all called to, to do this. We're called to put something aside and store it up. It's a sacrificial thing, but here's what I mean by that. Anytime you say yes to giving, you must say no to something else that you could do with that money, don't you? I mean, like there's no way around that. That's just the reality. When I start to think that way, I start to go, yeah, wow, gosh, what I could have done with decades of giving, right? If you start to, but that's a worldly perspective, isn't it? Because it's saying that somehow what I could have done with that money here is greater than what it's going to count for up there. And I tell you what, I'm going to bank on up there. Because that's eternal. This is temporary. I think there's a place too here where because you're aware of need, it's not that need is insignificant. Paul points out that these are suffering saints in Jerusalem. But somehow I'm choosing to set something aside for someone else's needs above my own. And haven't we been talking about that? Chapters 11 through 14, building up the body. So, sacrificial. Lastly, next to lastly, as he may prosper. Proportional. Now, we love having a, a template. Oftentimes, you'll hear people talk about the tithe. The tithe is an Old Testament, Old Covenant practice for Israel. It was legislated. Like God said, this is what you will do. Uh, you're not going to think about it. I'm not like leaving it up for discussion. I'm just like, when you get what you get, whether it's monetary or agricultural or I don't know what you'd call animals, uh, whatever that is, you're going to give from that, okay? And it's going to be this amount, and it was called a tithe. That isn't in the New Testament. It's actually far bigger it's literally you saying, God, how much would you like? And I'll give it. Which means that you and I have to depend upon the leadership of the Holy Spirit, which we have, which the Old Testament saints didn't. So there is this incredible posture of gratitude for the grace we have been shown and engagement of the enablement we have with the indwelling Holy Spirit. And that's how we decide to give. So the proportional part 
basically all he's saying there is the amount of one's gift is different from the ability to give. So Paul would say everybody can give. There, there is no one in the room that literally has no ability, but the amount that you're able to give, that's where we're gonna probably see some differences. Some of you will be able to give more than others. But think about it. What, all the conversations that we had about gifting, like God doesn't give the same gift to everybody and not everybody is called to exercise their gift in exactly the same way as everybody else, right? We're a body. And so there are some within our body that God will entrust more material resources to than others. They're not better than, they're not superior to. It's just, it's just literally, some people can play guitar and some people can't. That's it. There's no value at all associated with that except that they use their gift. Now that's talking in a, in a big scheme of things, but he said each of you, right? So we're all called to give. Some of us will be gifted by God to be able to do more than others. But we're supposed to give proportionally. Our natural instinct is to view financial gain as God's approval of increasing our standard of living instead of God's enablement to increase our standard of giving. So, man, we gotta be really careful about how we interpret our circumstances. I like what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. That's challenging. I, I hope you have this memorized because I've said it a lot, but I'll say it again and maybe you can write it down. God will always give us what we need to do what he's called us to do. God will always Always give us what we need to do what he's called us to do. And if we only need a little, he'll give us a little. And if we need a lot, he'll give us a lot. But that's his prerogative because he owns it all. That allows us to give generously. Lastly, he mentions uh, that he wants to avoid there being any collecting when he comes. And I think there's, I wrote the word in deliberate with that to describe that. It, it just means that there's no last minute pressure packed arm twisting kind of grand finale. Okay, we're gonna bring it up. And you know, you remember the thermometers? You probably saw those at some point. We're gonna get to the top, you know. He's saying none of that. I don't want any of that. I want you to be so deliberate in your gifting that when I show up, there's this pile of cash that I can take to these saints in Jerusalem. I don't even wanna have to talk about it other than to say, thank you and well done. Then he talks about when he arrives. When I arrive, verse three, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. 
If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. It's kind of interesting reading the commentaries around this because guys make a whole lot of noise about those two verses. Um, like Paul was like, he, didn't, he never wanted to even see the money, didn't want to handle it. He was you know, totally removing himself from the process and all that for the purpose of integrity and protecting his reputation. And I mean, it goes on and on and on. And it was kind of like, good grief, guys. I think what he's saying is, hey, by the way, here's how we're going to deliver the gift to Jerusalem. <laughs> now, prudence is fine. And I get, I'm a pastor, so I get the idea of avoiding the appearance of evil or temptation. Some of the, That's all cool. But you know what? If money's going to get from one place to another in ministry, somebody's got to touch it. So what we do as a church is we just put systems and procedures in place that just make sure that it's seen by multiple people every step of the way and it gets where it's supposed to get. And I, I will tell you, we're very intentional about that here. But it, it's a little bit weird when you start kind of saying, well, you can do this and you can't do that and I don't want to see this or I don't want to hear that or that kind of stuff. It's just, it's just kind of strange. It's like we're a family. So we're about just doing the work together and getting it done and, and we'll follow systems and procedures. But anyway, that's, maybe that's a little bit of an aside. Here's his procedures. He's asking them to appoint a group of people so there's safety in numbers. They're actually gonna be carrying money to Jerusalem. So if there's a group, that's safer than just one lone person walking down the road begging to be beaten and robbed. Secondly, um, there is integrity with the team where multiple people know what's happening and where the money is and all that kind of stuff. This is my favorite part. It, it, again, commentators are like, Paul is trying to get them to do it for him so he can stay out of the mix. But I think what he's doing is saying, listen, guys, I want you to go to Jerusalem. And I want you to see your brothers and your sisters. And I want you to see their faces when we show up with that gift. And they experience in a very tangible way the love of God for them through his people. Tell me the stories when they get back to Corinth, right? I mean, it'll, they'll gather around. You guys, you're never gonna believe it. It's, it's like when we sent our team to Haiti and they come back and they tell us, guys, it was unbelievable. It blew us away. They were so full of gratitude and yet they encouraged us so much with the joy that they have with so little, right? Same deal here. He's giving them an opportunity to be engaged in the most direct way. And then he is promoting unity by calling a bunch of Gentiles to go to the Jewish church in Jerusalem and have to sit around the table together and deal with the reality that we're not like each other, but we believe the same thing. Let me wrap up with this. 
giving it fellowship. Our heart as an elder team is to be as transparent as we can possibly be with you, to never, ever, ever strong arm you, guilt you into something, try and persuade you or talk you. We feel like our job is to provide vision for how you and I can participate in the mission when it comes to our stuff. And we are as committed to doing that with you as we're asking you to be. So it's not two different groups of people here. We're all in this together. Um, You notice that we don't pass the plate. There's nothing in the Bible that says you do or don't have to pass the plate. Somehow, I I haven't researched the history on that tradition, but it started somewhere somehow. Um, We ascribe to 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Let me read that to you. Each one, Paul says, must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So, we honestly just never felt like we needed to give you a weekly reminder and a little moment in our worship gathering to get your money. So we have boxes back there, we've got, Online giving, like there's mechanisms, ways for you to do it, but we are genuinely trusting you to go to the Lord sincerely and ask him, Lord, what do you want me or us to do financially? And then do it. Now we have a monthly equipping time we call First Fruits, and that's on purpose. That's just to keep all of us continuing to, to think biblically about this area where we can so easily stray, any of us. But beyond that, we're honestly, we're just trying to put ministry out in front of you to speak very openly about needs and then let you respond. And honestly, guys, <laughs> it is so encouraging to see you respond, whether it's Haiti or Windshape stepping stones, embrace grace. I could go on and on. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing. It is a display of the grace of God in your life. Let me end with this passage as a so what. Um, It certainly applies to us. I think you'll see that as we go but, but there's some great categories here for us. So prayerfully, I want you to listen to these words and, um, and see how God might call you to respond. This is in Paul's letter to Timothy, chapter 6, verse 17 through 19. He says this, As for the rich in this present age, and I won't even go into statistics, but if you compare us to the rest of the world, we're rich, just trust me. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They, that is the rich, are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, 
thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. He's talking the eternal future. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So prayerfully, what is it that you're really holding on to? Let the Lord just move into that place with the Holy Spirit guiding you in a response to uh, the call to be about this act of grace. Take a moment and pray about that.